If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 25 and 26 of Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 25 In which a slight glimpse is had of San Francisco. It was seven in the morning when Mr. Fogg, Uda, and Paspatu set foot upon the American continent, if this name can be given to the floating key upon which they disembarked. These keys, rising and falling with the tide, thus facilitate the loading and unloading of vessels. Alongside them were clippers of all sizes, steamers of all nationalities, and the steamboats with several decks rising one above the other, which ply on with Sacramento and its tributaries. There were also heaped up the products of a commerce which extends to Mexico, Chile, Peru, Brazil, Europe, Asia, and all the Pacific Islands. Paspatu, in his joy on reaching at last the American continent, thought he would manifest it by executing a perilous vault in fine style, but, tumbling upon some worm-eaten planks, he fell through them. Put out of countenance by the manner in which he thus set foot upon the new world, he uttered a loud cry, which so frightened all of the cormorants and pelicans that are always perched upon these movable keys, that they flew noisily away. Mr. Fogg, on reaching shore, proceeded to find out at what hour the train left for New York and learned that this was at six o'clock p.m. He had, therefore, 
an entire day to spend in the Californian capital. Taking a carriage at a charge of three dollars, he and Uda entered it, while Passepartout mounted the box beside the driver, and they set out for the International Hotel. From his exalted position, Passepartout observed with much curiosity the wide streets, the low, evenly ranged houses, the Anglo-Saxon Gothic churches, the great docks, the palatial wooden and brick warehouses, the numerous conveyances, omnibuses, horse carts, and upon the sidewalks, not only Americans and Europeans, but Chinese and Indians. Passepartout was surprised at all he saw. San Francisco was no longer the legendary city of 1849, a city of banditti, assassins and incendiaries, who had flocked hither in crowds in pursuit of plunder, a paradise of outlaws, where they gambled with gold dust, a revolver in one hand and a bowie knife in the other. It was now a great commercial emporium. The lofty tower of its city hall overlooked the whole panorama of the streets and avenues, which cut each other at right angles, and in the midst of which appeared pleasant, verdant squares, while beyond appeared the Chinese quarter, seemingly imported from the celestial empire in a toy box. Sombreros and red shirts and plumbed Indians were rarely to be seen, but there were silk hats and black coats everywhere, worn by a multitude of nervously active, gentlemanly-looking men. Some of the streets, especially Montgomery Street, which is to San Francisco what Regent Street is to London, the Boulevard des Italiens to Paris, and Broadway to New York, were lined with splendid and spacious stores, which exposed in their windows the products of the entire world. When Passepartout reached the International Hotel, it did not seem to him as if he had left England at all. The ground floor of the hotel was occupied by a large bar, a sort of restaurant freely open to all passers-by, who might partake of dried beef, oyster soup, biscuits and cheese, without taking out their purses. 
payment was made by only for the ale, porter, or sherry, which was drunk. This seemed very American to Passepartout. The hotel refreshment rooms were comfortable, and Mr. Fogg and Uda, installing themselves at a table, were abundantly served on diminutive plates by the most professional of waiters. After breakfast, Mr. Fogg, accompanied by Uda, started for the English consulate to have his passport visaed. As he was going out, he met Passepartout, who asked him if it would be not well before taking the train, to purchase some dozens of Enfield rifles and Colt's revolvers. He had been listening to the stories of attacks upon the trains by the suits and Pawnees. Mr. Fogg thought it a useless precaution, but told him to do as he thought best, and went on to the consulate. He had not proceeded two hundred steps, however, when, by the greatest chance in the world, he met Fix. The detective seemed wholly taken by surprise. What? Had Mr. Fogg and himself crossed the Pacific together, and not met on the steamer? At least Fix had the chance once more to behold the gentleman to whom he owed so much, and, as his business recalled him to Europe, he should be delighted to continue the journey in such pleasant company. Mr. Fogg replied that the honour would be his, and the detective, who was determined not to lose sight of him, begged permission to accompany them in their walk about San Francisco, a request which Mr. Fogg readily granted. They soon found themselves in Montgomery Street, where a great crowd was collected. The sidewalks, street, horse-car rails, the shop doors, the windows of the house, and even the roofs were full of people. Men were going about carrying large posters and flags, and streamers were floating in the wind, while loud cries were heard on every hand. Hurrah for Camerfield! Hurrah for Mandiboy! It was a political meeting, at least so Fix conjectured, who said to Mr. Fogg, Perhaps we had better not mingle with the crowd, there may be a danger in it. Yes, returned Mr. Fogg, and blows, even if they are political, are still blows. Fix smiled at this remark, and, 
in order to be able to see without being jostled about, the party took up a position on the top of a flight of steps, situated at the end of Montgomery Street. Opposite them, on the other side of the street, between a coal wharf and a petroleum warehouse, a large platform had been erected in the open air, towards which the current of the crowd seemed to be directed. For what purpose was this meeting? What was this occasion of excited assemblage? Phileas Fogg could not imagine. Was it to nominate some high official, a governor or member of Congress? It was not improbable, so agitated was the multitude before them. Just at this moment there was an unusual stir in the human mass. All the hands were raised in the air. Some, tightly closed, seemed to disappear suddenly in the midst of the cries, an energetic way, no doubt, of casting a vote. The crowd swayed back. The banners and flags wavered, disappeared an instant, then reappeared in tatters. The undulations of the human surge reached the steps, while all the heads floundered on the surface, like a sea agitated by a squall. Many of the black hats disappeared, and the greater part of the crowd seemed to have diminished in height. It is evidently a meeting, said Fix, and its object must be an exciting one. I should not wonder if it were about the Alabama, despite the fact that that question is settled. Perhaps, replied Mr. Fogg, simply. At least there are two champions in presence of each other, the Honourable Mr. Camerfield and the Honourable Mr. Manderboy. Buddha, leaning upon Mr. Fogg's arm, observed the tumultuous scene with surprise, while Fix asked a man near him what the cause of it all was. Before the man could reply, a fresh agitation arose. Hurrahs and excited shouts were heard. The staffs of the banners began to be used as offensive weapons, and fists flew about in every direction. Thumps were exchanged from the tops of the carriages and omnibuses, which had been blocked up with the crowd. Boots and shoes went whirling through the air, and Mr. Fogg thought he even heard the crack of revolvers mingling in the din. The route approached the stairs and flowed over the lower step. 
one of the parties had evidently been repulsed, but the mere lookers-on could not tell whether Manderboy or Camerfield had gained the upper hand. It would be prudent for us to retire, said Fix, who was anxious that Mr. Fogg should not receive any injury, at least until they got back to London. If there is any question about England in all this, and we were recognised, I fear it would go hard with us. An English subject, began Mr. Fogg. He did not finish his sentence, for a terrific hubbub now arose on the terrace behind the flight of steps where they were stood, and there were frantic shouts of Hurrah, Manderboy! Hip, hip, hurrah! It was a band of voters coming to the rescue of their allies and taking the Camerfield force in flank. Mr. Fogg, Uda, and Fix found themselves between two fires. It was too late to escape. The torrent of men, armed with loaded canes and sticks, were irresistible. Mr. Fogg and Fix were roughly hustled in their attempts to protect their fair companion. The former, as cool as ever, tried to defend himself with the weapons which nature had placed at the end of every Englishman's arm, but in vain. A big, brawny fellow with a red beard, flushed face, and broad shoulders, who seemed to be the chief of the band, raised his clenched fist to strike Mr. Fogg, who he would have given a crushing blow had Fix not rushed in and received it in his stead. An enormous bruise immediately made its appearance under the detective's silk hat, which was completely smashed in. Yankee, exclaimed Mr. Fogg, darting a contemptuous look at the ruffian. Englishman, returned the other, we will meet again. When you please. What is your name? Phileas Fogg. And yours? Colonel Stamp Proctor. The human tide now swept by, after an overturning fix, who speedily got upon his feet again, though with tattered clothes. Happily, he was not seriously hurt. His travelling overcoat was divided into two unequal parts, and his trousers resembled those of certain Indians, which fit less compactly than they are easy to put on. Uda had escaped unharmed, and Fix alone bore marks of the fray in his black and blue bruise. Thanks, 
said Mr. Fogg to the detective, as soon as they were out of the crowd. No thanks are necessary, replied Fix. But let us go. Where? To a tailor's. Such a visit was, indeed, opportune. The clothing of both Mr. Fogg and Fix was in rags, as if they had themselves been actively engaged in the contest between Cramerfield and Manderboy. An hour after, they were once more suitably attired, and with Udo returned to the International Hotel. Passepartout was waiting for his master, armed with half a dozen six-barreled revolvers. When he perceived Fix, he knitted his brows, but Uda having, in a few words, told him of their adventure, his countenance resumed its placid expression. Fix evidently was no longer an enemy, but an ally. He was faithfully keeping his word. Dinner over, the coach which was to convey the passengers and their luggage to the station drew up to the door. As he was getting in, Mr. Fogg said to Fix, You have not seen this Colonel Proctor again. No. I will come back to America to find him, said Phileas Fogg calmly. It would not be right for an Englishman to permit himself to be treated in that way without retaliating. The detective smiled, but did not reply. It was clear that Mr. Fogg was one of those Englishmen who, while they did not tolerate duelling at home, fight abroad when their honour is attacked. At a quarter before six, the travellers reached the station and found the train ready to depart. As he was about to enter it, Mr. Fogg called a porter and said to him, My friend, was there not some trouble today in San Francisco? It was a political meeting, sir, replied the porter. But I thought there was a great deal of disturbance in the streets. It was only a meeting assembled for an election. The election of a general-in-chief, no doubt, asked Mr. Fogg. No, sir, of a justice of the peace. Phileas Fogg got into the train, which started off at full speed. Chapter 26 In which Phileas Fogg and party travel by the Pacific Railroad From ocean to ocean, so say the Americans, and these four words compose the general designation 
of the Great Trunk Line, which crosses the entire width of the United States. The Pacific Railroad is, however, really divided into two distinct lines. The Central Pacific, between San Francisco and Ogden, and the Union Pacific, between Ogden and Omaha. Five main lines connected Omaha with New York. New York and San Francisco are thus united by an uninterrupted metal ribbon, which measures no less than 3,786 miles. Between Omaha and the Pacific, the railway crosses a territory which is still inhabited by Indians and wild beasts, and a large tract which the Mormons, after they were driven from Illinois in 1845, began to colonize. The journey from New York to San Francisco consumed formerly, under the most favourable conditions, at least six months. It is now accomplished in seven days. It was in 1862 that, in spite of the southern members of Congress, who wished a more southerly route, it was decided to lay the road between the 41st and 42nd parallels. President Lincoln himself fixed the end of the line at Omaha in Nebraska. The work was at once commenced and pursued with true American energy, nor did the rapidity with which it went on injuriously affect its good execution. The road grew, on the prairies, a mile and a half a day. A locomotive, running on the rails laid down in the evening before, brought the rails to be laid on the morrow, and advanced upon them as fast as they were put in position. The Pacific Railroad is joined by several branches in Iowa, Kansas, Colorado, and Oregon. On leaving Omaha, it passes along the left bank of the Platy River, as far as the junction of its northern branch, follows its southern branch, crosses the Laramie Territory, and the Wastachi Mountains, turns the Great Salt Lake, and reaches Salt Lake City, the Mormon capital, plunges into the Tulia Valley, across the American Desert, Cedar and Humboldt Mountains, the Sierra Nevada, and descends via Sacramento to the Pacific. Its grade, even on the Rocky Mountains, never exceeding 112 feet to the mile. 
Such was the road to be traversed in seven days, which would enable Phileas Fogg, at least so he hoped, to take the Atlantic steamer at New York on the 11th for Liverpool. The car which he occupied with a sort of long omnibus on eight wheels, and with no compartments in the interior, it was supplied with two rows of seats, perpendicular to the direction of the train on either side of an aisle, which conducted to the front and rear platforms. These platforms were found throughout the train, and the passengers were able to pass from one end of the train to the other. It was supplied with saloon cars, balcony cars, restaurants and smoking cars. Theatre cars alone were wanting, and they will have these some day. Book and news dealers, sellers of edibles, drinkables and cigars, who seemed to have plenty of customers, were continually circulating in the aisles. The train left Oakland Station at six o'clock. It was already night, cold and cheerless, the heavens being overcast with clouds which seemed to threaten snow. The train did not proceed rapidly, counting the stoppages. It did not run more than twenty miles an hour, which was a sufficient speed, however, to enable it to reach Omaha within its designated time. There was but little conversation in the car, and soon many of the passengers were overcome with sleep. Passepartout found himself beside the detective, but he did not talk to him. After recent events, their relations with each other had grown somewhat cold. There could no longer be mutual sympathy or intimacy between them. Fix's manner had not changed, but Passepartout's was very reserved and ready to strangle his former friend on the slightest provocation. Snow began to fall an hour after they started, a fine snow, however, which happily could not obstruct the train. Nothing could be seen from the windows but a vast, white sheet, anything which the smoke of the locomotive had a greyish aspect. At eight o'clock, a steward entered the car and announced the time for going to bed had arrived, and in a few minutes the car was transformed into a dormitory. The backs of the seats were thrown back, bedsteads carefully packed were rolled out by an ingenious system, berths were suddenly improvised and each traveller had soon at his disposition 
a comfortable bed, protected from curious eyes by thick curtains. The sheets were clean and the pillows soft. It only remained to go to bed and sleep, which everybody did, while the train sped on across the state of California. The country between San Francisco and Sacramento is not very hilly, the Central Pacific taking Sacramento for its starting point extends eastward to meet the road from Omaha. The line from San Francisco to Sacramento runs in a northeasterly direction along the American River, which empties into San Pablo Bay. The 120 miles between these cities were accomplished in six hours, and towards midnight, while fast asleep, the travellers passed through Sacramento, so that they saw nothing of that important place, the seat of the state of government, with its fine keys, its broad streets, its noble hotels, squares, and churches. The train, on leaving Sacramento, and passing the junction, Roslin, Auburn, and Colfax, entered the range of the Sierra Nevada. Cisco's was reached at seven in the morning, and an hour later the dormitory was transformed into an ordinary car, and the passengers could observe the picture picturesque beauties of the mountain region through which they were steaming. The railway track wound in and out among the passes, now approaching the mountain sides, now suspended over precipices, avoiding abrupt angles by bold curves, plunging into a narrow defile which seemed to have no outlet. The locomotive, its great funnel emitting a weird light, with its sharp bell and its cow catcher, extended like a spur, mingled its shrieks and bellowing with the noise of torrents and cascades, and twinned its smoke amongst the branches of the gigantic pines. There were few or no bridges or tunnels on the route. The railway turned around the sides of the mountain and did not attempt to violate nature by taking the shortest cut from one point to another. The train entered the state of Nevada through the Carson Valley about nine o'clock, going always northeasterly, and at midday reached Reno, where there was a delay of twenty minutes for breakfast. From this point, the road, running along Humboldt River, passed northward for several miles by its banks 
Then it turned eastward and kept by the river until it reached the Humboldt Range, nearly at the extreme eastern limit of Nevada. Having breakfast, Mr. Fogg and his companions resumed their place in the car and observed the variety landscape which unfolded itself as they passed along the vast prairies, the mountains lining the horizon, the creeks with their frothy, foaming streams, sometimes a great herd of buffaloes massing together in the distance, seemed like a movable dam. These innumerable multitudes of ruminating beasts often formed an insurmountable obstacle to the passage of the trains. Thousands of them have been seen passing over the track for hours together in compact ranks. The locomotive is then forced to stop and wait till the road is once more cleared. This happened, indeed, to the train in which Mr. Fogg was travelling. About twelve o'clock, a troop of ten or twelve thousand head of buffalo encumbered the track. The locomotive, slackening its speed, tried to clear the way with its cow-catcher, but the mass of animals was too great. The buffaloes marched along with a tranquil gait, uttering now and then deafening bellows. There was no use of interrupting them, for, having taken a particular direction, nothing can moderate and change their course. It is a torrent of living flesh which no dam could contain. The travellers gazed on at this curious spectacle from the platforms, but Phileas Fogg, who had the most reason of all to be in a hurry, remained in his seat and waited philosophically until it should please the buffaloes to get out of the way. Passepartout was furious at the delay they occasioned and longed to discharge his arsenal of revolvers upon them. What a country, cried he. Mere cattle stop the trains, and go by on a procession, just as if they were not impeding travel. Parbleu! I should like to know if Mr. Fogg foresaw this mishap in his programme. And here's an engineer who doesn't dare to run the locomotive into this herd of beasts. The engineer did not try to overcome the obstacle, and he was wise. He would have crushed the first buffaloes, no doubt, with the cow catcher. But the locomotive, however powerful, would soon have been checked. The train would inevitably have been thrown off 
the track and would then have been helpless. The best course was to wait patiently and regain the lost time by greater speed when the obstacle was removed. The procession of the buffaloes lasted three full hours, and it was night before the track was clear. The last ranks of the herd were now passing over the rails, while the first had already disappeared below the southern horizon. It was eight o'clock when the train passed through the defiles of the Humboldt Range, and half past nine when it penetrated Utah, the region of the Great Salt Lake, the singular colony of the Mormons. <laughs>